Shalom, Salam, and welcome to the History of the Land of Israel podcast. I am Shail Ben Ephraim, and I welcome you to the one podcast with the guts to survey the most provocative historical narrative in the world. Episode 31, The Kingdom of the Nomads. Peace between Mitanni and Egypt proved surprisingly durable. But that wasn't all good news from the Egyptian perspective. You see, Thutmose III was dead, and his heirs were not exactly his equals at war or in any other regard, and they weren't interested in the Levant either. So their presence in Lebanon and Syria grew gradually weaker, though the Egyptian troops remained. Meanwhile, Mitanni had agreed to respect the Egyptian sphere of influence, as we discussed in previous episodes, and they were more worried about the Hittites anyway. But in the meantime, things in Egypt had become increasingly unstable. In 1353, a revolutionary pharaoh took the reins of power. At first, this guy was known as Amenhotep IV. But in the fifth year of his reign, he changed his ruling name to Akhenaten. Doesn't sound like such a big deal, it's changing your name. But this wasn't just a trivial change. It was one with deep ideological meaning. You see... Amenhotep's original name meant Amun is satisfied, Amun being the god of the air and one of the eight primordial and most beloved Egyptian deities. Meanwhile, the new name can be translated as effective for the Aten. Who was Aten? That refers to the sun disk. So we're talking about a god that looks like a sun disk. Akhenaten installed a new religion dedicated to the sun disk. What made it so revolutionary was that this was a monotheistic approach, where the worship of other gods was deeply discouraged. The political ramifications of this decision were massive. They may also have had a downstream effect on the eventual establishment of Judaism. The new pharaoh also moved the capital of the Egyptian kingdom from Thebes to Amarna. Why? Well, Like any religious decision, you can put this down to genuine belief or chalk it up to political expediency. I always look at the latter. It's just how I'm wired. And it's also hard to explain religious fervor, but it's much easier to explain political needs. You see, the priestly class in Egypt, and Thebes in particular, had become too strong for the liking of Akhenaten. They were basically a rival power base. Their leadership under the high priest of Amun had undercut the power of the pharaoh. And as we know, autocratic leaders, and some democratic leaders too, who shall remain nameless, like to undercut rival bases of power. So, when Akhenaten died, his sarcophagus was destroyed, and his name was wiped out of Egyptian history forever. Indeed, there's no mention of his existence in the king's lists, the official histories of the Egyptian kingdom. And he was wiped out so well that archaeologists didn't even know he existed until the 19th century. But thanks to discovering the archives from his capital in Amarna and other archaeological discoveries from the area, we now know more about him than most pharaohs. Oh, the irony of history. Now, this episode's not about Akhenaten. But everything I told you is significant for two reasons. First, we know more about international relations in this period than in other periods in that millennia, and most other periods in general. Second, 
It explains why Egypt was very busy and unable to exert much influence in Canaan, Lebanon, and Syria. So there was a power vacuum developing in uh, the Levant, and as we know, nature abhors a vacuum. Meanwhile, Mitanni was also growing weaker. And we'll discuss the process that led to their fall in future episodes. But it's important to remember their power was at this time waning due to internal instability, so rivalry between the different lords, and the rise of Hittite power inside their sphere of influence, completely changing the power dynamic in the region. So power vacuum had developed in the area where Mitanni and Egypt had once sparred. They were both there, but they were weakening. Local tribal forces, bandits from the Egyptian perspective, cousins from the Mitanni perspective, stepped into the void. These people, called the Amaru, made their homes in the Arantis Valley and the Lake of Homs. That wasn't a big problem for Egypt, but their ambitions stretched to the Lebanese coast, the strategic center of Egyptian power. Now, culturally, they were Canaanites, but of a nomadic persuasion, led by a sheik named Abdi Ashirta. And if this sounds like a familiar name, there's a reason for that. These were the people who made life a nightmare for Biblos, a story we covered in episode 13 of the podcast. The land Abdi Ashirta ruled was technically under Egyptian control. The capital of this kingdom of nomadic upstarts was in the mountainous area to the east of Tripoli. This was the core area of the Amu. No significant late bronze archaeological site has been found there thus far, and that would seem to indicate the area was inhabited only by farmers and pastoral groups and other uprooted elements. No one who would build anything of any consequence. And they kept their nomadic characteristics, even as the power of the Amuru grew, for economic but also cultural reasons. They'd been there for centuries, but their power had always been limited when the empires were at play. But we have a lot of testimony of their existence much earlier. For example, 400 years earlier, they were mentioned in the Mari tablets, which we discussed previously. One of those tablets says, quote, We received the messengers of the four kings of Amurum, end quote, hinting at their decentralized structure. We also know that Mitanni taxed them and took most of it in wool. As you'd expect from pastoralists, that's what they had. The Mari archives also speak of appointing officials from among the, quote, chiefs of pasture under the auspices of their kings. So the city-states in the area had attempted to co-opt these tribes into a state structure. And as we'll see, that's something that will continue in the Middle East for centuries and even millennia. Now, amazingly, these tribes maintained a coherent identity for hundreds of years, despite being nominally under the boot of various empires and being nomadic. The Babylonians, the Hittites, the Egyptians, the Mitanni, they did their own thing under all of them. Here's how academics describe the secret of their survival. Genealogical relationships among pastoral groups enabled them to modify their social and political structures to suit the conditions in which they found themselves, end quote. And that's a dry way of saying that they had two main advantages, blood ties and adaptability. They were like the terrain. If you want to control the area, you must learn to work with the Aparu. 
and they always stuck together, even in hard times, because they were family, and that meant something to them. So even when one tribe was destroyed or cleared out of an area, they couldn't destroy the entire Amuru culture or kinship. And since some believe they are the forefathers of the Israelites, genetically and spiritually, this will sound familiar. While the Egyptian sources refer to them as a unit, that doesn't seem to have really been the case. The Aparu were likely a loosely affiliated group of bands. As we know them, the leaders were not heads of unified kingdoms. Instead, they were the best-known sheiks from the culture with the most influence, and often the ones who had the most ties to the outside, which is why they were known. The king of Byblos described them as a rabble, and said that the land of Amuru follows a stronger party meaning they are untrustworthy and fickle. But here's the problem. The Amuru don't have their own written sources, or not many of their own written sources. We often have to take the words of state forces uh, for granted, and they never saw kindly to the efforts of nomads to protect their own culture. We don't know much about where Abdi Ashir Dar came from, but his name linguistic tendencies, familiarity with the terrain, all suggest he was a local yokel. Indeed, most believe he was born to Apiru bands from the Lebanese highlands. But we do know that at first he was quite submissive to Egypt, and referred to himself as, quote, a servant of the king and a dog of his house, end quote. Although that's a pretty common name for interlocutors of the pharaohs, uh, and how they referred to themselves. He vowed to be a protector of the land for the pharaohs. Though Egypt did not recognize the Amuru as a legitimate nation, Abdi Ashirta appears to have received an appointment of some sort by the empire, an attempt to co-opt him, no doubt. But he proved difficult to control and ended up conquering cities, friendly and hostile to the pharaoh, without discrimination. Therefore, our friend Abdi Ashirta had to, as Brandon Benz put it, quote, not only did he originate from Amuru, but he also played an important role in administrating Egyptian interests in the region. This meant that he had to negotiate two very different and at times competing sources of authority. The often opposing perspectives embedded in these two sources of authority intensify Abdi Ashirta's complexity, end quote. And this is a very poetic way of saying he was a man torn between two worlds and cultures. And that meant he found himself doing a lot of what we would today call code switching. And in his case, very successfully. Since he is by far the best-known leader of the Amuru as far as historians are concerned, it's easy to think of Abdi Ashirta as a powerful nomad king. But that doesn't really appear to be the case. It's best to look at his role as a military leader appointed by the Egyptians, but also accepted by his own people. That means he had to get along with his Egyptian superiors and enjoy the confidence of local leadership. So he had to deal with a coalition of local sheiks with blood ties between them, which he possibly had blood ties with them as well. The Egyptians chose him because he had enough influence to be helpful, but not enough to wield much independent power and be a threat to Egyptian imperial interests, at least as far as they thought. The nomad leader's role within the Egyptian administration was equivalent to the Hazanuti, a role in Egyptian colonial governance though at first this was an unofficial capacity that he performed. These were local leaders assigned to a role beneath an Egyptian superior, a governor. 
They were in charge of a specific urban center and its environs. But he was much more potent than the average Egyptian official. So Abdi Ashirta ended up being responsible for the defense of a much larger area than most. It was rare for non-Egyptians to wield this much military power within an imperial framework, but not unheard of. His boss, officially, was a governor in the rank of the Rabinu. These individuals were responsible for the welfare of Egyptian citizens and their descendants living in the Levant. That meant Abdi Ashirta was responsible for defending the area militarily when Egyptian troops were not there from the enemies of the pharaoh and to cooperate with Egyptian troops when necessary. His missions also included protecting the harvest and the grain of Sumur, preparing for the arrival of Egyptian forces and officials, and supplying those for transit. How well he performed these capacities is a matter of debate, and we'll take a look at that. The area Abdi Ashirta was charged with stretched from the Orontes Valley to the Sumur and Ulasa coastal cities. But not every town there bowed willingly to the Apiru. The kingdom of Irkata, most likely located to the northwest of the modern city of Tripoli, was not a fan. The city elders wrote to the pharaoh, quote, We fall at the feet of the king our lord seven times, and seven times more. The sons of the traitor to the king seek our harm. Irkata seeks loyalty to the king, end quote. And the traitors, in this case, were, of course, the Abiru. They told the Egyptians they had been waging war against them, but had been unable to crush, crush the nomads. Therefore they asked, quote, May the king our lord heed the words of his loyal servants. May he grant a gift to his servants, so our enemies will see this and eat dirt. We shall keep the gate of the city barred until the king's breath reaches us. Severe is the war against us. Terribly, terribly so. End quote. If this sounds like the plea of a loyal ally to Egypt, it's not that simple. You see, Irkata was a longtime ally of the Mitanni, and they had asked for their protection against the Apiru first. When that was rejected because of the peace treaty between the two, only then did they ask the Egyptians out of pure desperation. But Egypt wasn't fooled and allowed the Apiru to take the city over. It's not clear if they could have stopped them anyway. The Ashirta took over the city and reported to the pharaoh, quote, There were no men in Sumur to guard it, so I came before Sumur and delivered your house from the hands of your enemies. Had I not been dwelling in Irkata, surely the troops of Sehal would have burned Sumur and its palace down in flames. But when I came to assist from Irkata and arrived in Sumur, no men were left in its place. Just four were there. Sabilu, Bisitanu, Maya, Erzawa. And they said to me, Rescue us from the hand of the troops of Sechlal. And I rescued them from them. End quote. So this message is an attempt by Abdi Ashirta to show how useful he was, how the cities that were loyal to the Pharaoh would have fallen to the enemy if he had not been there. But he's also showing something else, that he can live where he wants, do what he wants. He says, I could have been living somewhere else, but I chose to live in Irkata, where I could be more useful to you. That's a strong hint that his independence from Egyptian authority, one that we'll see more hints of later. This point is highly significant, because while the Egyptians were very interested in some places and their security, they really couldn't care much about others. So some cities where Abdi Ashirta had influence were under the direct supervision of the Egyptians through their local representatives. 
but there would have been no imperial presence in others, especially in the more rural areas. This is a pattern we see repeated in all Egyptian imperial conquests. They're very patchy. But it's also why the pharaoh needed someone like Abdiashirta in order to establish their control. He could make sure that even without troops there, the people in the hinterlands were under the influence of Egypt and did not present a threat to strategic trade networks. Though Abdiashirta was technically at the disposal of the Egyptians, one bit of expansion was upsetting to them. The bands under him took over Byblos, the most strategically important city in all of Canaan, and killed its king. A local Egyptian official complained that, quote, it was the king that placed the king of Byblos, not the Amiru, end quote. Amiru is another name for the nomadic bands. Therefore, they had no right to kill the leader of the Egyptian colony. But Abdiashirta would explain to the Egyptians that he did it for them. By his version, Byblos was cooperating with Mitanni, and he was doing his duty in aiding the pharaoh. And there wasn't much that the pharaoh could do once the task was completed. In the Amarna letters, the king of Byblos often accused Abdiashirta of conspiring against him, and by extension against Egyptian power. But his descriptions make clear that the Apiru leader only had influence over regional leaders and did not command them. Take this quote, for instance. Quote, He assembled in front of the temple of Ninurta and then fell upon Byblos and drove from the heart of the lands in order that all lands may align with the Apiru. Then will our sons and daughters be at peace forever. End quote. So, according to the text, the men under Abdi Ashirta established an oath among themselves. In other words, they came from different places and sources of authority. So, before they could make common cause, the troops had to swear an oath so they could trust each other and work for a common cause. We'd already run into this phenomenon when we discussed Mari and its relations with local leaders, who swore oaths of fealty for that campaign. The traditional Levant significance of doing this was that each leader maintains their power and sovereignty, but swears to use them faithfully. And of course, gathering in front of the Temple of Nunorta was also significant. This is a Sumerian god who started his career as a god of springtime thunder and rainstorms. Yeah, pretty specific. Then he became the god of farming and ended up as the god of war. So for nomads, who lived a warlike existence, this god had a lot of sway. At least five mentions in the documents, in the Amarna letters, of the Apiru gathering together for a campaign. And that gives us some strong hints at what their political structure looked like. Perhaps there was a specified number of troops. Each tribe was required to provide, and they would be put under the control of the Egyptian-appointed military commander. It appears that Abdiashirta needed to have the authority to demand forces from the other members of the Apiru. So he couldn't demand them, actually. He could only request them. This contrasts the abilities of Egyptian officials elsewhere, who would refer to the troops under their command as theirs, to raise and dispose of. But the Aparu were built more traditionally. For them, troops were constantly on loan 
from the relevant tribal leaders. The replies of Abdi Ashirta to the Egyptians in the Amarna letters make this fact very clear. Here's one example. He once told the Pharaoh, quote, I am together with my troops and my chariots, together with my brothers, and together with my apiru, at the disposal of the archers, where the king, my lord, tells me to go. End quote. He also mentions a group called the Satians. You may be wondering who they are, and I wish I had a decent answer for you. They're also nomadic people who saw themselves as separate from the Apiru, but their exact cultural affiliation is unclear. They may have Aramean, Proto-Arabic, or purely Semitic roots. Unfortunately, nomadic people don't leave much behind. The only reason we know this much about the Apiru is because we have so many Egyptian sources that mention them, because they were very important for their politics. But we do know the Satians would exist in one form or another until well into the Persian era. They're not crucial to our story, aside from reminding us that there were several coherent nomadic identities in the Middle East throughout the ages, about which we know very little. And they were certainly aligned with the Apiro at one point, suggesting a certain kind of affinity between nomadic troops, cultures, as they faced increasingly strong city-states and empires. Now, returning to Abdi Ashirta's role in getting together all the Apiru tribes, it required excellent diplomatic capability. And we can see that in his dealings with local city-states. His main rival, Rib Adu of Byblos, describes more than once in the Amarna letters how different city-states defected to him despite having previous agreements with Byblos. He was always outmaneuvering Byblos. If we trace all of his diplomatic ties that are presented in the notes, they include a close working relationship with Beirut, Tyre, and Sidon. So basically, he had his finger in every pot. Even more incredible was the ability of his deft diplomacy to play the Egyptians and Mitanni against each other. He seems to have cultivated strong ties with both empires, although we know less about Mitanni because we don't have their documents, to ensure material support and protection for his people. Much the way many countries maneuvered between the U.S. and the USSR during the Cold War. We first hear about his relations with Mitanni in a message from Byblos to Egypt. The bitter king of Byblos complains to the pharaoh that, quote, they have taken my cities. Moreover, that dog is in Mitanni, but his eye is on Byblos. Obviously, the king of Byblos had reason to stress the relationship between the nomadic leader and the rival empire, and maybe even exaggerate it. But that doesn't mean that these ties weren't real. Because in a later message, the king complains that ties between the Apiru and Mitanni have improved. Quote, the king of Mitanni visited Amiru itself and said, How great this land! Your land is extensive. But there was also good news for the king of Byblos in that letter. And he noted, Abdi Asirta is very ill. Who knows when he dies what will happen? So, Abdi Asirta would indeed soon be dead. However, it appears that his own people killed him, rather than that he died of whatever illnesses he had, or that his external enemies killed him, unless they were involved in the internal politics of the uh, nomadic tribes turning against him. There's really no way for us to know exactly who killed him and why. Unfortunately, that's lost to time. 
It makes sense that his rivals would finish off the leader once he showed weakness. But considering the many achievements Abdi Asirta had brought the Apiru, it does suggest a profound ingratitude. That makes me suspect perhaps an external actor was behind it. So the king of Byblos, the arch-enemy of the Apiru, hoped that the death of Abdi Asirta would end their reign of terror against him. But it was not to be. Soon he was complaining that, quote, the war against the sons of Abi Asirta is very severe. They have occupied the lands of Amuru, and the entire country is theirs, end quote. Yes, the bloodline of Abdi Asirta would continue to haunt the hapless king of Biblos and many other enemies. So, several sons took over, including Abdi Asirta's eldest, Aziru. And he would further expand the Apiru holdings. It's remarkable that instead of seeing the sons try to kill and double-cross each other, as we would see many times in history, they cooperated well, at least at first, and perhaps that's a testament to the decentralized structure of the Apiru, which allowed each one of them to have their own power base, without stepping on each other's toes too much. They mostly continued the policies of their father. As we shall see, the Apiru pursued diplomacy with the local city-states and did so devastatingly well. They managed to keep the nomadic tribes united. However, there was a significant difference in policy from the sons to the father. They did not continue to work for the Egyptians. While Abdi Asirta played a complex game whereby he functioned as an Egyptian official and nomadic sheikh, they treated Egypt as either an enemy or an irrelevant actor most of the time. That's probably because Egypt had become sort of an absentee landlord, and the sons were more aware of this change in the power dynamic. As we will see, the sons were far more concerned with the Mitanni and the Hittites. They cultivated strong relations with both local empires, and that gamble paid off very well for them. So, Abdi Asirta had captured the city of Ardata. After his death, it became the capital of the Amuru kingdom. We know that because there's evidence that the tablets they sent to Egypt came from there. After that, the capital moved to Irkata. All this to show, these guys were rolling stones, always rambling wherever the wind blew, and other such rock and roll cliches. Now, according to the Amarna letters, Aziru could also get troops together for the tribes, just as his father did. He was a capable diplomat. Biblos's king reported that, quote, Now Ampi is at war with me. Know that the magnate and the lords of the city are at peace with the sons of Abdi Asirta. Know that all are traitors, and you must not inquire about me for my enemies. End quote. The upside of this report is that the diplomatic skills of the new Apiru leadership had completely outmaneuvered Biblos. In another message, Ribhada, king of Biblos, reported that through the combined efforts of Abdi Asirta's sons, five more cities had fallen to the Apiru. And he was not amused. He said, Who are the sons of Abdi Asirta, the servant and dog? Are they the king of Kasu or the king of Mitanni, that they take the land of the kings for themselves? End quote. By the way, Kasu was the contemporary name for the Babylonians. He was amazed that this bunch of nomadic savages were becoming the dominant power in the region and doing whatever they pleased. And it appears that the diplomatic influence of Aziru and the other sons soon eclipsed that of their famous father. The king of Byblos reported that they had become close allies with Beirut and Sidon. He later lamented, All the mayors are at peace with them. 
Even worse, the Apiru were cooperating with the Hittites to the north. So he said, quote, Now they are mobilizing the troops of the Hittite countries to seize Gubla, end quote. And the Hittites were the coming power in the region. So that was a very important development. Cooperation between the nomadic princes did not last. If anything, it's shocking it proved as durable as it did. So, gradually the stock of Azir, the oldest son, rose at the expense of the others. We know this because Riphada starts complaining about his exploits, rather than attributing them generally to the Apiru generals and the other kids. He says, quote, Aziru has taken all my cities, end quote. That's how we know this kid has arrived. His new status is confirmed in tablets by other leaders. For example, Abi Milku, the king of Tyre, says that Aziru and the leaders of several cities, quote, took oaths among themselves, end quote, before attacking him. That looks pretty similar to the status enjoyed by Abu Shirta. Like his father, Aziru was very successful in his military campaigns. And the king of Tyre reports that, quote, we have neither water nor wood, nor is there a place where we can put the dead, end quote. Still, he believed in his forces, stating, they will not be able to capture Tyre, end quote. He was wrong. Anyway, after our old and dear friend Ribhada was killed, his heirs in Byblos saw Aziru as the source of all evil. A message from Ili Rapi, the new king, states, quote, here is the crime that Aziru committed against the king. He killed the kings of Amiya, the king of Aldata, and the king of Irkata, that rise, and a commissioner of the king, my lord, end quote. But oh boy, the new king of Byblos did not get the response he wanted to his message. In fact, he seems to have been completely bypassed by the Egyptians. In the next tablet, he complains, why did the king communicate through Aziru? So that means, of course, that the pharaoh sent his next letter to Aziru instead of to Byblos. You can almost hear his exasperation echo across three millennia. From this letter, we learn an important fact. As we've mentioned, the sons had broken with Akhenaten and the Egyptians. But now they were, at the very least, negotiating. More likely, Egypt and the Apiru were working together. And things would only get tighter between them. Soon, the Apiru leader would be recognized as a Hazanu, a local commander under Egyptian authority. And while his father had basically fulfilled that capacity, Aziru, the son, was officially recognized as it, in recognition of the things that he had achieved. And not long after that, the Egyptians would start referring to him by an even more spectacular title that his father had not obtained, king. So how did this relationship evolve? On the one hand, it involved Aziru swearing fealty to Egypt and speaking like a lowly servant of the pharaoh. He wrote, quote, To the great king, my god, my lord, my son, I fall at the feet of my lord, my son, my god, seven times. End quote. You know, that whole thing. But that's not the whole story. That's just how you express yourself when you talk to the king of Egypt. The letter and the status of Aziru was a recognition of his strength who had really proven to be the primary mover and shaker in the region. Here is the brilliant analysis of Trevor Bryce regarding what Aziru was doing. Quote, 
Even more than his father, he seems to have been anxious to gain formal recognition of his status from the pharaoh. These two policies were not mutually exclusive. There was more chance, he must have reasoned, that he would win from the pharaoh the concessions he sought by arguing from a position of strength. The pharaoh might well refuse to do business with a family representative with such an appalling record of treachery and aggression against Egyptian subjects, unless he could be persuaded that it would be very much in his interest to do so. End quote. So, how did Aziru do that? How did he play up that it was in an Egyptian interest? Well, to get Egypt to cooperate, he played up the Hittite threat. He wrote to Akhenaten, the Egyptian king, quote, If the king of Hatti takes hostile action against me, may the king, my lord, send me troops and chariots to support me, and I will defend the land of the king, my lord, end quote. And Hatti, of course, is the name used for the Hittites at that time. Either way, it appears that Aziru visited Egypt more than once in his lifetime. In one of those visits, the Apiru leader was probably sworn in as the Hazanu. Aziru seems to have set his sights on Sumur as his capital right from the start, and he wrote to the pharaoh, quote, Right from the beginning, my lord, I have sought to devote myself to the king's service. But the high officials of Sumur have not allowed me. I am innocent of the slightest offense against the king, my lord. The king, my lord, knows who the real offenders are. I will truly comply with all that the king, my lord, asks of me. And his new status did not stop Aziru from cozying up with Egypt's rivals, the Hittites. Not even close. So the pharaoh asked him, quote, Why did you provide for the messenger of the Hittites, but did not provide for my messenger? End quote. And as Brandon Benz puts it, the king viewed Aziru's disproportionate exercise of hospitality as an ominous sign of impending betrayal. End quote. But Aziru answered, that he would give the Egyptian emissary all the same honors. This guy was a crafty operator, and none of the great powers could control him, even though none of them trusted him. But the pharaoh was not amused by this answer. He replied with some pretty hardcore carrot-and-stick stuff. Quote, Now if you perform your service for the king, your lord, what is there the king would not do for you? But if for whatever reason you prefer to do evil and plot treacherous things, you, together with your entire family, shall die by the king's axe. Quote. And Akhenaten's distrust for Aziru only deepened. He wrote to his untrustworthy vassal, quote, Everything you wrote to me was lies. But then he railed at him for cooperating with the king of Kadesh. Quote, you are at peace with the ruler of Kadesh. The two of you take food and drink together. Why do you act so? Why are you at peace with the ruler the king is fighting with? End quote. Does the Egyptian king sound a little paranoid to you? Maybe. But just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not after you. Aziru soon openly betrayed his supposed Egyptian master and signed a treaty with Hittite king Supliliuma. And Aziru may have been planning this all along. Of course, we can't rule out that Aziru jumped into the Hittite camp because the king of Egypt had, you know, literally threatened to wipe out his entire family. That can sour your relations with the king. So according to the text of his treaty with the Hittites, Aziru, quote, knelt at the feet of Supliliuma, end quote. Of course, we know this guy is perfectly willing to kneel at anyone's feet and then stab them in the back if necessary. Or stab them in the back just for fun. Still, the treaty recognized Aziru as, quote, king of the land of Amuru, making him the leader 
of the United Tribes, at least in the eyes of both great powers. So we can speculate as to why Aziru moved from the Egyptian camp to the Hittite one. But it's quite possible that during his visits to Amarna, the crafty nomadic leader had realized that the authority of Akhenaten rested on a fragile basis. The heresy that the pharaoh had committed had created an unstable Egypt. And it's easy to see why Aziru would bet on the Hittites if he had gone. But despite his somewhat stormy relationship with Egypt, the recognition he had received from the great power did wonders for Aziru. The other Apiru began to recognize him as their king during this period. All local chieftains bowed to this ability that he had. Quote, Akhenaten's response to his defection must have been one of considerable alarm, particular as Aziru took with him into the Hittite camp the whole land of Amuru, a substantial territorial gain for Sopliliuma, at his Egyptian brother's expense. Other Egyptian subject territories in the region were now severely at risk. So that's another quote from Benz. Evidence shows that Egypt was now prepared for war against Aziru and the Hittites. But the truth is, they were just too weak. Factions rived the 18th dynasty, and the Sundisk religion was incredibly unpopular. And Akhenaten died before he could get a campaign underway. However, Egypt would not forget about the loss of Kadesh and Amuru, would you? They would soon try to win back what they saw as their rightful property. And what about Aziru? He got what he always wanted. The Egyptians could not have been happy about his betrayal, but they couldn't ignore his power. And in letters to him, rather than referring to him as some third-rate chieftain, the Egyptians now addressed him as, quote, the man of the city of Amuru. And there's no city of that name. What it meant was the city where he dwelt, wherever it was, was the capital of a recognized nation. Aziru now enjoyed the same honorific title they would give to any recognized king of any city-state. As I said, the kid had arrived. Now, this story is not only interesting, it's highly significant in how we look at the region at this time. One way of looking at relations between Egypt and the Amuru is as an uneasy alliance between two different worldviews. The rigid and territorial approach that would eventually become the state versus the clan's timeless and primordial social order. Tension that remains unresolved to this day in the Middle East, even though the state is far more capable today, and the clans far less so. The clan loyalty that typified the Apiru remained in place for 3,000 years in Lebanon and Syria. In his History of Ottoman Lebanon, Marfo writes that Lebanon maintained authority there through, quote, overlapping lineage pyramids tied to each other by close kingship bonds with the head of the most important lineages at the peak, end quote. The Ottomans would select a representative of the clan they could work with as emir based on, quote, hereditary ties, the approval of the council, and the qualities of military leadership, end quote. The family remains a powerful form of identification in the Middle East to this day, and most states in the Middle East base their power on complex webs of relations with them. And we first see that pattern and we'll, with the Apiru, and we will continue to see it throughout the history of the land of Israel. And with that, please rate us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, but only if you're going to give us five stars, and please do. Otherwise, send me an angry email or a nice one. <laughs>
or questions at historylandisrael at gmail.com. That's historylandisrael at gmail.com. Also note that now we have a YouTube channel that is getting off the ground, so check that out. Remember to follow us on Twitter and Facebook as well. See you on the History of the Land of Israel podcast next time.